0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, no surprise there. We'll hear from the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire on the controversies around school reopening, among other things, how much blame or credit, depending upon your perspective, do teachers unions deserve for blocking the return to in-classroom instruction. And then we'll hear from the economic historian Helen Yaffe on how Cuba has handled the COVID pandemic and what they've got going with vaccine development. On the social media, I've seen many people, notably parents who are eager to send their kids back to in-person school full-time, complaining that teachers' unions are selfishly blocking their return out of a narcissistic and excessive sense of caution. Though I often criticize American unions for their weakness, lack of imagination, fear of confrontation, and subordination to the Democratic Party, I still instinctively take labor's side in any substantial dispute, so I've found this situation distressing. What's going on with the unions and slow school reopenings? Are they rationally protecting their members, as any union should do, or are they hindering the recovery of an essential public service? To answer those questions and to alert us to severe dangers to the entire enterprise of public education at the state level, here's education journalist Jennifer Berkshire. She was on the show in November to discuss her book, co-written with Jack Schneider, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School, published by the New Press. Berkshire and Schneider are also co-hosts of the education podcast, Have You Heard? Jennifer Berkshire. A lot of my friends who are otherwise sympathetic to unions have really turned on teachers, the teachers unions, because of uh, they perceive um, them as the block to getting kids back to school. There's a certain bit of opacity about what the s- teachers are asking for, um, at least to hear. We don't really know what's going on in New York and other places as well. So what do they want and are, are they wrong to uh, blame the teachers unions for being so recalcitrant?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, just to advise people who are feeling that way to step off of Twitter for a little while, put down the latest Jonathan Chait take (laughs) and expand your perspective. It's really hard to make sense of what's happening without thinking through the way that we have or rather have not responded to the pandemic. It's hard to make sense of this without thinking about the political wars that are really swirling right now all over the country. And finally, the the fights that are happening within the Democratic Party. So, so Doug, just tell me where, which one of those do you want to start with? <laughs>
0: Your choice. I'll, uh, I'll give it to you. I'll, you have free right. So
1: ride. let's start with the pandemic response, because I think what you really need to focus on here is the fact that Everywhere you look, the response or non-response has been to sort of push the decision-making down to the most local level, which, you know, that means schools. And so what people are so mad about in so many different places is that the unions are really the largest organized force within that decision-making process. So they see, you know, the people you're talking about see unions as a block to this very common-sense decision to reopen the schools just follow the science. So one thing that really interested me is that people listening who are in places like New York or Chicago, they probably think that that that's representative that you know that unions are strong and they're militant and that you know they have these really loud voices, but vast swaths of the country look nothing like that. Unions are weak or non-existent. So I was very curious to see What do the school reopening fights look like in places where unions have a lot less power? So I interviewed people all over the country. I did a podcast about it. And the answer was that the exact same fights are playing out. It's just that the ire is directed at other entities. So if the union doesn't have the power to do anything, right, like a lot of states, unions can't bargain collectively. There's no right to strike. Um, There's no sort of union consciousness. So all the ire is directed at the school board or it's just directed at the administrator. The virus doesn't really care whether teachers have collective bargaining. Schools still have to deal with the issue of what happens when people get sick. So right now, everyone's really mad about the fact that New York City, for example, has what seems like this extreme rule where if there are two cases, you shut the school down. Right?
0: Which is about to change, by the way.
1: Right. Exactly. So, But that's held up as an example of unions having too much say over this process. But if you look around the country, like this is happening everywhere in the sense that people who run schools and run school districts are having to make up safety protocols in real time. It's a crazy situation. And so I think that the ire that's directed at unions is actually really kind of misplaced, that it exaggerates the influence that unions have had over this process and frankly takes the blame off of the state and federal leaders who should have exerted a lot more
0: influence. Now we can understand why the teachers unions would be very reluctant to return. They're trying to protect the uh, the health and interests of their members. But what, what's driving these administrators in uh, other areas where unions are weak or non-existent?
1: First of all, we have a greatly exaggerated sense of how many schools are actually closed. So uh, a new poll came out just um, actually like an hour ago, and I thought it was really interesting. It was about the percentage of teachers that have have been vaccinated or have vaccines scheduled. And one of the things that they asked teachers was the percent who are back teaching in person, and 85% are back. In some capacity. It doesn't mean that schools are open five days a week. We're focused on these, what are quickly becoming outliers. And so it's not accurate to talk about teachers blocking the return of school reopening. What you have are these city by city, state by state situations where they're trying to figure out how do we meet the demands of these various stakeholders? And I hate that word, but there's really no other word to use. Like, how do you, how do you appease these different interest groups who's, who right now, like, it's not just that they don't see the world in the same way. So you have loud parent groups who will settle for nothing less than not just five day a week in person learning, but they want all the trappings of schooling. They want the sports activities. They want the prom right they want things to go back to normal they want the graduation ceremony
0: now, is that a particular demographic that's responsible for yes them?
1: it's an it's a it's a more affluent uh, demographic it's a white demographic it's a wealthier and more conservative demographic and the polling on all this stuff has been remarkably consistent so you can see where the ire at unions is concentrated you can see who still wants remote learning the numbers have started to shift now that vaccines are becoming more prevalent but the it's really pretty amazing how consistent the polling has been and you know one of the things that i'm fascinated by is that you've actually seen approval of unions rise during this, particularly among working-class parents and parents of color. And why is that? Well, it's because in a lot of communities, teachers are really the only voice who are acknowledging just how hard-hit these communities have been by COVID and demanding stronger safety protections. So those parents don't look at teachers' unions as being obstreperous Or a block on, they don't look at this and say, you know, like, why won't the teachers just follow the science? They see an organized group that's actually demanding things that they care about.
0: The teachers, well, the unions are often terrible communicators in general. And we really don't have a really clear sense of where the teachers are coming from in a lot of cases. I mean, is there some deficiency in the way the the, the teachers unions are making their case?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's always the case. As someone who once worked in the field of union communications, I could just, you know, I could talk to you all day about what a problem this is. But the other problem is that the voices that are the loudest in critiquing the unions tend to have very little idea how schools are organized or how unions are run. There is an immense amount of attention being paid right now to Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, as if somehow she could. Control what millions of teachers do in the US. That's not the way unions are organized. And it's also not the way that schools are organized. I saw just the most crazy speculation early on about why. Countries in Europe were more likely to have their schools reopen. And, you know, the easiest answer to that is that European countries have national education systems. Kids in France read the same thing all over the country at the same time on the same day. We have a completely different education system by design. But it means that it's very difficult to just turn on a dime and order people to do stuff. We see that as as something good about our system. I think you've gotten kind of a, an up-close look at the weaknesses in a situation like this. But it also means, again, that just blaming the unions for what's happening in specific communities is too broad a brush.
0: We get contradictory information of just what kind of vector for uh, transmission the schools are. One report will say it's, uh, it'll spread like wildfire if we reopen the schools. Others say schools are weak sites of transmission. What do we know? Uh, what do you think?
1: So I would uh, put in a plug for what has become my absolute favorite podcast during this period and like a go-to resource for anyone who's really trying to process this stuff. It's called Death Panel, and it features three foul-mouthed left-wing epidemiologists. And a lot of what they do is episode after episode, they'll go through some study that has seized the headlines. Like, what was the study that suddenly made it okay to separate kids by three feet versus six feet in the schools. We talk about the science as though it's been unchanging, but particularly with regard to kids in schools, it's changed all the time. And, you know, if you think back, like at first, people were really insistent that kids couldn't actually get COVID. And then when they could get it, they couldn't transmit it. If they could transmit it, they wouldn't transmit it in in schools. And that schools couldn't be sort of sites where where we would see COVID spread. The problem that we have is not just that we have studies pointing to different things it's that we're not doing anything else to reduce community transmission. So like in Massachusetts, where I am, elementary schools went back full in person as of yesterday, five days a week. Now kids are separated by three feet. Everything else in the state is now reopened. Casinos can be open 24 hours, rock climbing gym, laser tags, dining rooms, you name it, everything is open. As a result, our numbers are spiking and we have this crazy situation with variants in Massachusetts, where the science has changed again now because in part of the what's happened with the vaccine demographics is that kids turn out to be more susceptible to the variants. And so we're opening schools in live time while the science keeps changing. So if you're saying, you know, why won't they just follow the science? I think you have to acknowledge that that keeps changing in part because
0: that's how science works. I'm speaking with the education journalist, Jennifer Berkshire. We just sent our kid back, uh, today's Tuesday when we're recording this, we just sent him back uh, to his first in-person school in over a year. <laughs> Should we be worried?
1: I teach in person. I teach one day a week, and it's kind of amazing because I, I teach at Boston College, and they've sunk an unbelievable amount of money into keeping the school open. You know, they test people constantly. I think I've been tested four times already. So the problem is that that, on the one hand, I think schools... You don't need to worry because schools have gotten good at enforcing safety protocols. The problem is that it takes all the joy out of being in school. So I'll be interested to hear what your son thinks because I know like for my students who are in their senior year of college, it's a grind that being in class in a mask, like, all the things they love about college are, are gone. And that's what you hear a lot of students talking about as they return to school in, in real life. The other thing is that I spent a lot of time interviewing students about what the last year has been like, and I was amazed at how many of them could point to something that they liked about remote learning, even as they acknowledged just how horrible it was.
0: Yeah, our kid has had a miserable time of it. He's not super academic, and losing the social side of school has been really hard on him. Uh, And uh, we're hoping that even just two days a week, assuming it lasts, uh, will improve his outlook on life somewhat.
1: Fingers crossed. And one of the really important things that's come out of all of this is just this, you know, like wide acknowledgement that schools do so much more than just raise math and English test scores. And that sort of brings us to another one of these sort of big picture tensions that's swirling all around us. And that is, you know, you and I were talking beforehand about how we're actually very encouraged by a lot of the Biden domestic policy agenda. You know, especially the stuff they've been rolling around, out around child poverty is really encouraging. Who would have thought that you could just give money to families and your goal would be to make them less poor? Um, but the the challenge that all this raises is that they really have no vision for what schools should do. That they're left with the kind of dregs of the Obama vision. Um, So the first thing that you heard them, the first goal that they rolled out other than reopening schools and getting teachers vaccinated was standardized testing. So I don't know, like, is your son going to have to be tested?
0: Not anytime soon.
1: So this is really the big, you know, that standardized testing was the very centerpiece of the Obama education reform agenda. They had this very elaborate theory of change about how Raising kids' test scores and holding their teachers accountable for those test scores, that was really going to be the thing that lifted kids out of poverty, made us more internationally competitive, and, and kind of like secured our place in the knowledge economy. And now, you know, like fast forward a year into a pandemic, that's just always kind of a lunatic theory of change. And now it just seems like... It seems bonkers, but the Biden folks are having a hard time distancing themselves from that. They don't have a clear alternative. And a lot of the loudest reopening voices are also coming very much from within that part of the Democratic coalition, that they need the focus to return to what happens inside of schools, as opposed to the kind of like the more left part of the Biden coalition, They're focused on making people less poor by strengthening bargaining rights, for example.
0: Speaking of Biden, what does it mean now that uh, Betsy DeVos is off the scene?
1: So it's great that she's off the scene, but she's not off the scene at all at the state level. And this is like one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is that There's so much focus on what happens federally, but it's at the state level where all this crazy stuff is really playing out. People are paying attention to things like voting suppression, but the top agenda item in state after state where Republicans made big gains in 2020 is what they call education reform. And what they're doing basically is using the pandemic as uh, an excuse to roll out like these incredibly ambitious it's not even accurate to call them private school voucher programs they want to shift to a pro- to an approach where you just give the money to the parents some portion of the the what the state spends on education give that to the parents and let them spend it on whatever they want um, and so, like, this is happening in West Virginia. New Hampshire is on the cusp of enacting a program like this. Really radical stuff. And my concern is that this, in combination with the kind of culture war fixation on public education that Republicans all across the country are railing about the 1619 Project or, you know, schools turning kids into into trans youth, the goal is to really undermine the case for public funding of schools and to make K-12 more like higher ed where you decide how much you want to pay for it and then you know probably we'll have like a robust loan market that springs up to help you pay for that it's really ominous and i wish people would just pay more attention to what's happening at the state level i know it's you know it's it's not as exciting as hanging out on twitter and and following the medicare for all debate but it, this is where the action is
0: Education is a almost entirely state and local affair in the United States, right?
1: Absolutely, and it's the biggest ticket item in every state. And so, for example, I'm working on this project about the free state in New Hampshire, and that's where, you know, the libertarians moved to New Hampshire in the effort to turn it into a libertarian utopia. Like if your goal is to is to drastically shrink public expenditures, you have to start with public education. So, yeah, like it's it's pretty amazing to me that what seems like such an extreme view and a set of policies that would be really unappealing with Republican constituents have made their way into what's basically mainstream Republican policy.
0: The teachers unions, it seems to me, maybe it's just coverage or maybe it's a failure of communication, but they've done a fairly poor job at linking the safety of teachers to the safety of the whole project and the general public interest. This is something that unions often have trouble doing is uh, they look rather parochial and self-interested and not very much concerned with the broader interest of the public. Um, is, Is there more going on than meets the eye there?
1: I would say yes and no. I would agree with you that I think that this was a huge missed opportunity, that why wouldn't you make this loud-throated case that all kinds of workers need robust safety protections, especially since there's nobody else advocating for them, right? Like that that study that came out that reduced the amount of space necessary for in-person learning from six feet to three feet, that's going to be used to undercut the the working conditions of all kinds of workers right like there are all employers that just want to open the doors and you know like do not want to have to spend any more money to or hear workers complain about safety conditions this is you know kind of a green light I wish unions had been much more effective about doing that because too often it looked like all they cared about were the safety conditions of their own members. Now, I would say that, that one place where you really saw a difference in this is that in these unions that have embraced what they call bargaining for the common good, and in places like Chicago and Baltimore, where they really see their mission as being one of lifting up the community, they made a much broader case of around safety, and around the, the damage that COVID was doing in these communities. And it, it, it put the school administrators in kind of a difficult spot. It was, much, it was much harder for like a Lori Lightfoot in Chicago to respond to these kind of bigger demands that the union was making, even as, though, even as you saw those demands really resonating with a lot of parents in Chicago.
0: Well, as usual, we're not seeing much of that coming out of Michael Mulgrew and the UFT in New York.
1: No, and I, I mean, the reason for that is that you have, you know, this kind of like classic insider union, right? That like if you look at any of the exciting candidates who've run as like real, you know, like insurgents in New York, go and see where the UFT stood. And they were always with the status quo, right? They were always with the, the incumbent, And so it's interesting because I don't think that that reflects their membership. If you go to a union meeting and you uh, you talk about AOC or some of these other like a Jamal Bowman, they didn't even endorse Jamal Bowman.
0: He's one of theirs.
1: (laughs) Right. Like that. That to me is just crazy. And so it shows you how skittish they are from their point of view. They need a seat at the table. And so that means endorsing people who've been at the table for a really long time. But that's not the message that resonates even with their own members or with the community around their members. And it ends up putting them in a weaker position, right? Because it it just, they look self-serving. And to the extent that they're able to articulate a kind of public message, it's a message that's too small for the times.
0: Finally, um, you know, there's been a lot of dire predictions that uh, having these kinds of disruptions to schooling are going to leave, leave kids you know, handicapped educationally for life. You know, they're going to be uh, permanently um, poorer and dumber and that we're never going to recover from this miserable interval. Um, how justified are those concerns?
1: That kind of stuff just drives me crazy. Um, because if you take the time to actually talk to kids who've been through this, even if they thought remote learning was the worst thing in the world... The fact that they had to navigate this pandemic required them to do all kinds of things and learn all kinds of things that we, you know, we wouldn't have even been able to conjure up a year ago. I also worry that it puts us in this kind of moral panic territory. If you're writing off an entire generation of kids as hopelessly damaged, and we know who those kids are, right? They're kids of color. They're poor kids. They're the kids who need the most support. If you're arguing, basically, that there's nothing we can do to help them, that it's just throwing good money after bad... What's your case then for something like school funding? You know, what's your case for wraparound services? What's your your case for, for pushing to make schools do all the things that we know they need to do? So I get really nervous when I, I hear that kind of talk. Um, I worry about the long-term consequences to public education. I think the precarity of it as a project has really been revealed. You're going to see school districts that lose affluent parents to private schools There you have maybe, who knows how many kids are going to stay remote. They liked it better. Their parents don't want to send them back. Um, And then you have these crazy efforts to dismantle public educations that are, are frankly, going a lot further than I would have imagined a year ago.
0: That was Jennifer Berkshire, co-author with Jack Schneider of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School, published by the New Press. Berkshire and Schneider are also co-hosts of the education podcast, Have You Heard? You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Birth, School, Work, Death, a 1988 gem from The Godfathers. I haven't played that one in five months. Next, Cuba. As countries around the world still struggle with COVID-19, preventing its spread, treating the sick, and trying to get enough vaccines to immunize their populations, Cuba has been doing a masterful job at all those things. How did this small, poor country manage to outperform much of the rest of the world in tackling the pandemic? How did Cuba develop such a formidable biotech sector, all without relying on the things that are supposed to promote success in that area, like competition, profit, and patents? What help has Cuba offered to countries in the global south who find themselves shut out of treatments and vaccines? To address those questions, here's Helen Yaffe, who was on this show almost a year ago to discuss some of these issues. What do things look like now, another year into this goddamn pandemic? Yaffe is a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow and author of We Are Cuba, how are Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World, published last year by Yale University Press. She has an article on Cuban COVID vaccines on the Counterpunch magazine website. Helen Yaffe. Leaving aside the vaccination issues, how has Cuba been handling the pandemic using more traditional public health measures?
2: The Cubans have mobilized their extensive community-based and prevention-focused public health care system to really be their main tool for uh, handling the coronavirus and it's been remarkably efficient particularly in the initial period throughout 2020 in keeping contagion and fatalities low they took a decision to open up the airports in late november and there were a loss of cubans who were resident outside of the island and they were for obvious reasons desperate to get back to the island to see their families particularly over the festive season This has led to quite a severe surge in the virus. So they had more cases of coronavirus in January 2021 than they had had in the whole of the previous year, which was, you know, 146 fatalities in the whole of 2020 put them among the lowest rates in the world. They have faced a surge like most countries from the end of last year, the beginning of this year. But what's interesting is that their death rate is extremely low. So once people contract coronavirus, it's a far smaller proportion of those patients that actually die. So that has helped to keep their numbers down as well. Cuba has more doctors per person than anywhere in the world. When the coronavirus first started, when they had their first cases on the island, they did as most countries did close their universities and twenty eight thousand medical students went to work alongside the family doctors, which are located literally in every community in every neighborhood there's a family doctor where either the doctor and their family or the nurse and their family family live at the clinic and attention is available twenty four hours a day. And they know their patients, they categorise their patients according to their health status. That means they, they were very quick to be able to identify who were the patients in their area that would be susceptible to this coronavirus, which affected lungs and respiratory, created respiratory problems. So those 28,000 medical students went to work with the family doctors and nurses and in pairs they went Um, door to door, they went to, you know, most of the homes in Cuba on a daily basis, tracking down this disease. So trying to get ahead of it. Whenever anyone was suspected of having the virus, they were removed from community circulation, which is the best way to deal with it at that level. They were taken to an isolation centre, kept under vigilance. And then if they developed the coronavirus that they were tested, then they would be taken to a hospital. And then subsequently keeping fatalities down through really extensive public health care attention, but also using a whole portfolio of homemade and mostly biotech products that they've developed in Cuba, which has uh, seems to be reducing fatality quite significantly.
0: I think a lot of Americans hear uh, the story of the the isolation, um, but also uh, the scrutiny involved, and they think it's all very big brotherish and, you know, concentration camp kinds of metaphors pop up. And I recall that during the AIDS era, too, uh, Cuba's uh, approach was seen as very deeply authoritarian and interfere with um, civil liberties. What what, what do you say to that kind of critique?
2: Well, I think that that neoliberal libertarian approach to the concept of health has been really challenged during this global pandemic. I think the prevailing slogan now seems to be no one's safe until we're all safe. Even in Britain, which first responded to the pandemic by default to its neoliberal positions, uh, you know, it it rushed to keep uh, the economy or to open back up the economy as soon as possible. It failed to provide adequate resources for frontline workers, for those in um, public health care institutions and social care in the old people's homes. I'm in Scotland. One third of the fatalities from COVID-19 in Scotland are from old people in old people's homes because they just simply wouldn't take the measures that were necessary. But now, even in Britain, the government has introduced compulsory quarantining for people entering the country. The difference with Cuba is that people have to pay for their own quarantine. So they're expected to go for 10 days and to pay £2,000 to quarantine for 10 days in Britain. The issue has been exposed. Public health is a social question and um, it is totally inadequate to try and fit this within to a, a neoliberal libertarian framework of individual rights. Because actually, you know, I think people are now aware of how community transmission works. You don't need to know the people you're infecting, but you could change their life. That is a critique. But the countries that have dealt with the pandemic most effectively have approached this as a social problem requiring state mobilisation, the mobilisation of all healthcare authorities, public authorities to save lives. And, It can be critiqued on the basis of individual liberty, but, you know, when people are struggling to breathe in an ICU unit and they're being kept alive by uh, public health professionals, then perhaps um, their whole perception on, on rights and responsibilities will be adjusted.
0: People, of course, had to stay off the job if they're in isolation or just as a precaution. What kind of support was offered to people um, who couldn't work? In the United States, it's been very difficult because a lot of people resisted shutdown efforts uh, because they, they couldn't afford not to go to work. How did Cuba approach this problem?
2: One of the biggest reasons that people cannot afford not to work you know, in the United States and the same in Britain is um, because they depend on their salary for their housing, Right if you remove that factor on the basis that 96 percent of Cubans own the homes that they live in, then you see that you alleviate a lot of the financial pressure. But yes, the government did continue to provide financial support, social security and salaries to a, um, a certain level for people who were unable to work and they continue to do that. They've been supported. It has been completely possible in Cuba to not go to work or to work from home or or whatever was necessary, whatever was being required for this public health emergency.
0: And the treatments that kept the death rates are remarkably low. Um, I know they had their homegrown interferons. Um, What else was involved?
2: They had other drugs which they um, adapted for use to COVID-19. But one of the most interesting drugs that's been developed is a drug called Jusvinsa, What it does, you know, one of the the sort of deadly reactions with COVID-19 is when the lung uh, has an inflammatory reaction and the lungs fill with liquid. So this drug, Jusvinsa, um, prevents or halts or slows down that process. From the small initial trials, some of the results were really outstanding. So people in a critical condition who were taking this medication had a 90% survival rate. And that was, you know, compared to something like 20% at that point worldwide. So really promising biotech product from produced in Cuba by the Cuban medical scientists. And there is actually now an attempt to um, set up a joint venture has been set up with a, um, a British interest to try and introduce that into the Britain's National Health Service. That was one of the things that I would um, would highlight.
0: Now, of course, there's certainly no interest coming from the United States or a lot of other uh, countries uh, about what Cuba has done. I was surprised to hear the NHS is looking to this. But has there been any other attention paid to how Cuba has handled this? Um, Because we hear nothing about it in the United States.
2: Well, actually, I mean, I, I would disagree with you there. Perhaps it's just from my perspective. But I get contacted by a lot of different people, representatives in the United States who are really interested in what Cuba's done including the media so it is very interesting that the washington post has now even covered cubas vaccine developments and noted that it, you know it's a powerhouse in this area there's also nursing unions who are campaigning quite hard and um, arguing that public health authorities should set up a an arrangement with the cuban medical system to to be able to benefit from the medical specialists that Cuba is currently sending around the world through its Henry Reeve um, International Medical Brigades. So there is interest and, and, you know, let's not forget that the Cubans have sent these Henry Reeve brigades to now 40 countries. 57 brigades have now gone to 40 countries specifically to treat COVID-19 patients in those countries including in Italy. So it's the first time those emergency medical brigades have been in Europe, and, and that was their first destination, as you know, was Lombardy in Italy, when it was the epicentre of the epidemic just over a year ago. I would say that there's, there's quite a lot of countries have publicly expressed their interest in Cuban drugs and um, for COVID-19 and in Cuban vaccines, including India, Pakistan, Mexico, Venezuela, Bolivia, several other countries around the world. And I suspect that there are quite a few countries who are quietly speaking to Cuba about the possibility of getting hold of their treatments and their vaccines for COVID-19.
0: I'm speaking with the economic historian, Helen Yaffe. Okay, the vaccines. Um, What's going on there? They're developing, what, five of them now?
2: Yes. Incredible story. Five with others in the pipeline, in fact. They are working on two different platforms for developing their drugs. One of the platforms is being led by the Finlay Institute, which developed the world's first meningitis B vaccine in 1988. So, you know, decades of experience in groundbreaking vaccine discovery and innovation. And the other is being developed by the Centre for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology, who also has a, quite an astonishing a record of groundbreaking, innovative treatments. All of the Cuban vaccines are protein vaccines. That's um, one of the five different methods of vaccine that, that are being used. And um, the Finlay vaccines, the Sobarano vaccine, two, is the world's at, at this stage, the world's only conjugate vaccine. So it, it's mixed with another substance the world at the moment has 23 different vaccines that are in phase three trials. So all of the the vaccines that are being rolled out at the moment that people are receiving in their vaccinations are still formally at the phase three level, because there's a lot of unanswered questions, um, not necessarily about efficacy or safety, but more long term. So, you know, does do these vaccines stop you being able to pass on the virus to others? How long will they last? Will the immunity be six months or five years? Those questions can't be answered at this stage. And so of those 23 vaccines globally at that stage, two of them are Cuban. They have just finished the first round of clinical trials in Cuba. And they will be um, moving on to do what's called interventional studies. And these will involve 150,000 medical professionals in Havana, and then 150,000 um, more down in Oriente, in Santiago, and, and Guantanamo. And then gradually they'll be rolling them out to more people in Havana. So it, by the end of May, 1.7 million people in Havana, in addition to those numbers involved in the clinical trials, will have received the vaccine. By the end of August, they expect 6 million people in Cuba. That's more than 50% of the population, around 60% of the population to be vaccinated. And by the end of the year, the entire population of Cuba should be vaccinated. So Cuba will be among the first countries in the world to have achieved that important milestone.
0: A lot of uh, poorer countries in the South uh, are having trouble getting these vaccines. Uh, Obviously, Pfizer and Moderna and the the likes of those companies would like to make big money off these things. Uh, How is Cuba approaching um, aiding its comrades around the world?
2: So the Cubans have described this as being a vaccine for themselves and for the global South. They have set out, they've made clear that um, they are going to vaccinate the entire population, but... They are capable of industrial levels of production of these vaccines. So just taking one of those vaccines, the Soberano 2, they have said that they can produce 100 million doses this year, by the end of the year. So if you think about the Cuban population is um, 11.2, then you take away children because they're developing a different vaccine that would be appropriate for children And then you think that they are going to give free doses for each. So in other words, they have tens of millions of doses of Soberano 2, which will be produced by the end of the year. And those will be for export overseas. Now, they already have 100,000 Iranians who are participating in the Phase 3 trials, plus 60,000 Venezuelans. Um, And then the surplus, what they have to export, will... Will go overseas. Now, I've asked the Cubans about because everyone's very interested to know, you know, about the sort of commercial deals and how much will they make and all the rest of it. And um, at this point, they're saying clearly they haven't finished and signed off on phase three trials. So they can't talk about commercial deals. But when they do, it's very likely that they will approach those on the same basis that they approach the export of medical services overseas. And that is on the basis of the recipient country's ability to pay. So poorer countries are likely to not be charged to receive the vaccine, while wealthier countries will be asked to pay slightly over cost. And that money will help to subsidize the exports to the poorer countries. And and also they, of course, need to reinvest in the production process and the biotech sector in Cuba
0: just want to pause for a moment and appreciate the fact this is still a poor country and they could have made a lot of money <laughs> selling these vaccines and they choose not to. This is, I presume, out of revolutionary principle.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's been a guiding principle of development in, in Cuba. I mean, they have a concept of the lack of global health and, and global poverty being the results of unequal global structures, um, as they would see, you know, with the world dominated by imperialist powers that exploit the developing countries. And they have fought against that. They see Cuba's struggle for national independence as a struggle, which is a global struggle against imperialism and for the developing world for um, a more fair distribution of wealth globally, and of course, for the right of nations to self-determination. So for that reason, you know, as I've argued, historically, Cuba has been as prepared to send soldiers overseas, for example, to fight for independence from Angola, from the apartheid South African army, when it invaded in the 1970s and then 80s, as it has to send medical professionals who were there to serve the um, most abandoned communities the the most underserved communities in the world and to provide medicine that is free at the point of delivery As part of, as you say, a mission of solidarity with the global South.
0: This is a country, a small country, a poor country that has been under embargo from the United States uh, for, what, 60 some years. How did they manage to develop this impressive medical industry, medical structure? And what role did it play in development? Was it uh, a conscious uh, strategy to promote uh, economic and social development?
2: The first key to understanding Cuba's ability to develop its biopharma sector is um, education, mass education, huge investments in education to make education accessible and free to everyone in Cuba. And that is necessary to um, create the kind of critical mass of science graduates that are needed to be able to you know, advance into biotechnology and to set up the medical science sector. So education and public health being developed, receiving huge investments under the revolutionary government of 1959 in parallel. And then um, they actually began to develop the biotech sector as a conscious development strategy in the very early 1980s. Cuba was one of the first countries to set up an institution to develop this sector. It was the first time in Cuba's economic history that it had been at the vanguard of a developing global sector. Only five years after the world's first biotech firm was set up in the United States and the Cubans had set up an institute called the Biological Front. So yes, it was very much part of a a conscious strategy. It was very much a project that was promoted by Fidel Castro who had a vision about the importance of, since the beginning of the revolution, had a vision about the importance of science and technology for social development, not for private interest, profit and speculation. So the biotech sector um, is consistent with all of those characteristics. It's set up by state funds, is controlled 100% ownership by the state. They have dozens of institutions which do not compete in terms of resources or finances, only in terms of the race for innovation and and so on. It's directed towards serving public health needs. There's a great fluid communication and integration between the public health sector, the biotech sector, uh, the universities and research institutes. Um, And these factors explain The fast track that the cubans have had between the basic science when they start the basic science basic science and research into development of new drugs and into application within the public healthcare system and those are exactly the characteristics which have helped cuba to really stand out in the global pandemic it identified a global health need That was the coronavirus. It um, had different institutions collaborating, sharing resources. Both of these um, different platforms that they're using are actually the result of collaborations between different resources. There's no uh, speculators involved. There's no private interest. There's no attempt to make profit internally within Cuba through the development of these drugs. And that is such a different model. From what we see in the United States, where the biotech sector first developed and which really set the model for the rest of the world. I mean, the first biotech firm was set up by a venture capitalist with a biochemist. And, um, you know, for many years and even now, there are many biotech companies that produce nothing. They produce no products for the medical system. They produce no drugs for people's healthcare, and yet they make money. And they do this by using financial mechanisms like IPOs um, and so on through the stock exchange, through the NASDAQ, through high-risk investments. And essentially, the, that is the, the main purpose of those companies. In Cuba, it's the opposite. And they've said that very clearly in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. They have their biotech sector to meet public health needs, if in the process, through exports, they can make some revenues, they can plow back into their system, then that's great. But that's a secondary consideration.
0: So this is a living refutation of the capitalist doctrine that you need uh, intellectual property protections, competition and profit to make things happen. Um, you know, it's a living refutation of that state dominated system cannot innovate.
2: Yeah, it's, it's um, taken the, the prevailing um, dogma, I'd say, and, turned, and the Cubans have turned it on their head. And I think that is the reason that it's coming to attention now. Yes, it is producing very concrete results uh, that meet emergency needs right now. But it's also an alternative model which challenges this neoliberal dogma that the only way to achieve efficiency is through self-interest, through the market and so on. And I think that this pandemic has brought into question what the very meaning of efficiency is, because Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Britain, was reported to have been boasting the other day about how capitalism and greed were behind the um, British success with the vaccines and in terms of COVID-19. And, you know, actually it's dishonest because... The situation is the same in the United States, but the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine was developed with tens of millions of public money, you know, that was plowed into it, but the profits are privatized. And the same is um, the case in the United States. The National Institutes of Health receive hundreds of millions of dollars every year of public money to fund research the gains of which, the financial gains of which go into private pockets. It's the privatisation of social wealth, uh, and that's the process. And, and um, the Cubans demonstrate that actually it can be more efficient in if your objective is meeting a public health need at this point, an urgent global health need, which has the global economy at uh, some sort of a standstill and means that, you know, people are struggling to make a living.
0: That was Helen Yaffe, lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow and author of We Are Cuba, How a Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World, published last year by Yale University Press. You can find her article on Cuban COVID vaccines on the Counterpunch website. To check my assertion that we in the U.S. have heard little about Cuba's skillful handling of the COVID crisis, I did a search for Cuba COVID on the New York Times' website. The top hit, sorted by relevance, was your NBA coronavirus questions answered. There was a February 17th story about Cuba's vaccine development that led with bad news. Amid bread shortages, Cuba gets one step closer to a scientific milestone. Next, another NBA story, whatever the relevance of that might be. The Washington Post did do a story in late March that led with the possibility of the country becoming a vaccine powerhouse, but quickly pivoted to poverty, low salaries, and repression, and speculated that a successful rollout could be a propaganda coup. In other words, some news reporting, but wrapped in several layers of bourgeois ideology. I'm glad to hear the British National Health Service is interested in Cuba's work, if only the U.S. weren't so hidebound and insular. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Hard Drive from the new album, An Overview on Phenomenal Nature by Cassandra Jenkins. Till next week, bye. I
1: ran into Perry at Lola's place. Her gemstone eyes caught my gaze. She said, oh dear, I can see you've had a rough few months. But this year, it's going to be a good one. I'll count to three
0: and tap your shoulder. We're going to put your heart back together. So all those little pieces they took from you, they're coming back now. They'll miss them too.
1: So close your eyes. I'll count to three. Take a deep breath. Count with me.